Investors Chronicle. Hello and welcome back to the IC Interviews. I'm Mary McDougall and my guest today needs no introduction at all. I'm delighted to be joined by Terry Smith, founder of investment company Fundsmith and manager of Fundsmith Equity Fund, which has grown to over £28 billion and delivered an annualised return of over 18% since its inception in 2010. It's been a great success and has led to some people touting Terry as the UK's Warren Buffett. Terry also manages Fundsmith's Sustainable Equity Fund, which he launched in 2017. I've no doubt many of you invest in one of these funds or another of the Fundsmith stable. Terry, thank you for joining me. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. My pleasure. So to start us off, you read history at university. You graduated in 1974, which was a time of political instability and very high inflation. Established economic models were breaking down. Why did you join Barclays and then pursue a career in stockbroking and later fund management? Um, well, I joined Barclays, uh, ironically, because they gave me the toughest interview. Um, I did what was uh, called the milk round, I don't know if they still call it that, where you went off and got interviewed by a bunch of different firms. So I was interviewed by uh, Metalbox, the packaging company, which became Carradine, I believe, um, Unilever, Marks and Spencers, all the usual kind of people. And the most difficult interview I had was Barclays, and I liked that. That's what made me join them. Weird, isn't it? Uh, but that's kind of the way I am, I suppose. And I, uh, I worked at Barclays for oh, nine years. About the first four years, I was in commercial banking, learning to lend money and try and get it back and all those kind of fine things. And then they paid for, sent me to go and do an MBA and paid for it for 18 months. And when they got me back, they formed a finance department, which they'd never had before. They had auditors who would audit the accounts after the year, but they never had a, a finance department that would do management accounting and planning, planning their liquidity, planning the maturity mismatch on the deposits and the uh, and their loans, doing uh, currency capital raising and so on. And they got me together with a, a small group of two or three other people um, and formed a finance department. So for the next three or four years, I was the group finance manager for Barclays Bank, basically, which was a, a great sort of deep end thing, particularly since most of what I was doing, I had to do literally from scratch. I wrote the first maturity mismatch ladder for them, uh, where you look at you know what deposit, what loans you've got maturing in one day, one week, one month, three months, one year, et cetera, et cetera, and what deposits you've got on demand one week, uh, and seeing where your mismatches are, what currencies they're in, and what you do about it. Um, and to show you how long ago this was, I did it in a, in a software program called Lotus Notes, um, because Microsoft didn't exist, right? Or uh, barely existed at that point. And, um, uh, in the course of doing that, I got to know on both sides of the Atlantic pretty much all of the bank analysts in the uh, in the stockbroking investment banking world. And, and one day, one of them approached me and said, "Look, I think you do very well on this side of the fence as, as an analyst. I think you you know you clearly uh, you know understand this subject very well, and you know I think you've got an awful lot going for you in terms of uh, moving into this world, which is much more of a proactive world. We have to make things for the banking." Uh, and so I jumped ship and went into uh, into back, into stockbroking or investment banking as a bank analyst. Yes, so you really made a name for yourself with your book, Accounting for Growth, which was first published in 1992, caused uproar in the city as you exposed high-profile accounting tricks and outright frauds of the time. What's your take 30 years on? How big an issue is aggressive accounting and fraud today? Um, I, it's a different issue now to the one it was then. I mean, when I published the book, there was no doubt that accounting needed reform, but it, it did get an awful lot of reform. Uh, David Tweedy, Sir David Tweedy, as he now is, um, really sort of grasped uh, the nettle of, uh, of getting rid of an awful lot of the malpractice that was around and, uh, and cleaned up the, the thing a lot. Um, and I hope 
uh, that I made a contribution letter. But now it's a completely different thing. Now people don't read the accounts. That's the problem. Um, I mean, uh, really, people don't read the accounts. I, if I could find an adjudicator, I would bet you a large sum of money that the average so-called investor, whether professional or amateur, uh, in whatever capacity, doesn't read the reporting accounts or the, the, the 10K uh, for the company. They read the slides that management put forward and things like that. And so they miss things which are in the accounts. Um, and the slides very often have numbers with a little asterisk by them that says things like adjusted. Adjusted for what? Well, taking out all the bad stuff, obviously. You know, I mean, to give you an anecdote to illustrate it, when we were uh, established 10 years ago, we were looking through our list of potential investee companies, and one we looked at was IBM. And uh, it, we didn't buy it, as it happens. Unknown to us, Warren Buffett at the same time was uh, looking at uh, IBM. We know that because he then went and bought a 10% stake or something. The, the company very shortly after, disclosed it shortly afterwards. We discovered a $1.9 billion mistake in the cash flow. It wasn't what made us not buy it. We didn't like the business anyway. But <clears throat> still interesting to find that. And uh, Julian, my uh, my partner and uh, our head of research, rang IBM and sort of said, look, because um, whenever we find a mistake like that, and, and this is just one example, I can give you lots of, we always think, well, we're probably wrong, aren't we? I mean, we can't be there really, can we? So he rang up IBM and they said, the usual, we'll call you back. And then they called back and said, yep, yeah, absolutely right, that's wrong. $1.9 billion wrong. And um, and the more interesting part of the story is we sort of said, well, oh, is this the first time it's come to your notice? Because it was like the previous year's accounts that have been out for 10 months. They said, yeah, nobody's pointed this out before, which, I mean, it could mean every other investor had spotted it and decided not to bother doing anything about it. It seems a little unlikely, doesn't it? I, I conclude from this, and it's a, it's not a, 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 the only example I could give you, but you probably don't want all of them in, in the course of your podcast, that other people just don't read the accounts, basically. Um, and the, they, people rely on the management slide deck. They use adjusted numbers, adjusted from gap, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, if you think that people are reading the accounts, you would need to explain to me how things like Wirecard and Patisa Valerie have happened. Well, some people view investing as an art and others view it as a science. Um, Fundsmith focuses on numbers and proven companies. Would it be fair to say that Fundsmith believes the numbers are what count? Or to put it another way, how do you view the balance between qualitative and quantitative factors? But look, I, we do believe it's the numbers that count in the end. Um, you know, if, if we don't use the accounts to tell us anything, I'm not quite sure what they're there for uh, in the end. And, and if, it's, if something's a good company, good business, it will be there in the numbers, right? I don't need to meet the management to tell me this is a wonderful business or an analyst to tell me a wonderful business. I'll be able to see it in the numbers. It'll have a high return on capital, very high cash conversion, good gross and operating margins, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so I think there is uh, a very strong case for saying that actually the numbers are the most important thing you look at. But you do have to look at other things. I mean, the biggest one I would say is this. We are seeking to invest in good companies. Uh, we think there's a very good reason for doing that. We think it's the best long-term strategy. Um, and no amount of cheapness, going back to the sort of debate with value investment, which you didn't raise, but no amount of cheapness will make a bad company a good one. Right? It doesn't matter how cheap the shares are. It's not going to become a good business. Right? Airlines are not going to become a good business because the P is low. Right? It's not going to happen. <laughs> um, so investing in a good company, if you're a long-term investor, investing in a good company is a very, very important thing. But once you've established that it's got these numbers that look good over a long period of time, you've probably got a good company on your hands. But I think it's important to know a couple of other things. One is, how does it achieve that? What is the actual business? What does it do to get there? You know, it's not, it's not like, oh, we don't want to know what it does. Yes, we do want to know what it does, because we do want to know whether 
this is actually a sustainable business. I know it's a very fashionable word there, but in the real holistic sense of it, can that, it's no good looking in the rearview mirror and saying, this business has been great for the last hundred years. Yeah, how about the next hundred? Right? So what, how does it make its money? By what means does it fend off the inevitable competition? And are the management good at reinvesting the capital? If we've got companies, which we have at the moment, that are producing 25% return on capital, which we have, and roughly speaking, and they are investing about half of the earnings that they've retained at the Dubai dividend, which they are, uh, we basically should get a great result because if they can invest a 25% return, it's better than I can do, better than you can do, better than anyone could do, progress. The reason they're capable of doing that isn't because they're very clever, but because they're operating within a powerful business franchise, right? That spends off competition and glitz and peace. But of course, one of the other things you need to know is, are the management capable of continuing to do that? You, you have to be very careful about managements who have brilliant new ideas outside their main area of competence. Do you prefer to meet the management or do you prefer to maintain distance? And I actually think maintaining a bit of distance is a good idea. We do meet management. I, I almost think it's not an either-or question. Yes, we do, um, but we're not friends, right? <laughs> you know? uh, uh, um, and we don't need them to tell us the things that we can derive ourselves from analysis. I mean, almost the, the, the amongst all the, the, the stuff that we asked, if we meet, you, if you sat through one of our management meetings, you would think, well, most of this is pretty normal stuff, isn't it? They're asking, yeah, we don't ask about current trading. In fact, we always start by saying, I'm no interest in current trading. That's what everybody else asks about. It's like, we're not here for the next three months. We're here for the next 33 years, basically. So we say, right at the beginning, no interest in that. But then you'll find us asking about normal things like R&D and product development and, uh, and uh, development of distribution, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But somewhere in amongst that, you would find inevitably seeded in there, probably not totally obviously, so it doesn't become clear. The following question. Every year you have this lovely fountain of cash from these wonderful returns, yeah? And you have three basic choices. You can invest some of it in the business, you can go and buy other businesses, or you can give the money back to shareholders. Those are your three basic choices. Now, there are sub-choices within them. You can give the money back, for example, via a dividend or a share buyback, but those are your three basic choices. Reinvest, buy, distribute. And our basic question is, how do you decide between those three? What are your parameters and methods for deciding what to do? Because we are subcontracting part of our clients' capital to those people to manage. That's the reality of this. Yeah. And part of the beauty of the investment process is its simplicity and consistency. The mantra of buy good companies, don't overpay and do nothing, will be well known to our listeners. What do you mean by not overpaying? How do you change the valuation threshold when looking at different companies, as you'd expect? Uh, yeah, I mean, look, we compare our preferred methodology is to look at the free cash flow yield, um, which is to take the cash the company generates after paying for everything except the dividend. So the three dividend cash flows, because dividends are voluntary distribution. Again. This is, that cash belongs to the shareholders, that free cash flow. And we divide that by the market value to get a yield. And... Uh, we then compare that yield with a number of things. We compare it with other companies in our portfolio. We compare it with other companies in that we would be prepared to own. We compare it with the market. We compare it with bonds. And we try and see whether what we're buying is at least reasonable value on that basis. We also compare it not just now, but we try and have a stab at what it will be in the future. And um, we have a time horizon that we try and um, guesstimate that on. It's about five years. 
Uh, and the reason that we've chosen five years, which is a bit longer than most analysts go, is we've found that's a, a time horizon over which we are pretty good at getting this roughly right. And, and, uh, yeah, and with due respect to my colleagues, who, some of whom I might say are absolutely brilliant, um, it's not because we're brilliant that we get it right. It's because the companies are quite predictable. <laughs> what we invest in relatively predictable businesses, not all of them, but, but, but probably two thirds or more of our businesses are highly predictable businesses. So we can tell you now, why do we do that? Because we want to know not only what the free cash flow yield is now, but we want to know what we think it will be with the growth in five years time. Because what we're buying basically is that um, you can find companies with much bigger free cash flow yields, much cheaper than we're prepared to invest in uh, now. But because they're not growing much or at all, it will be the same free cash flow yield in five years time. Whereas we buy things sometimes with a low free cash flow yield now, and you will sort of scratch your head as do some of our investors. So I'll go, well, you overpaid for that a bit. And you go, how about the growth rate? You need to take the growth rate into account. The, the valuation of any security is a combination of its yield plus its growth rate in simple terms, very simple terms. So dividend yield plus dividend growth rate, earnings yield plus earnings growth rate, or as we prefer, free cash flow yield plus free cash flow growth rate. If, if the free cash flow yield is 4% and the company's growing at 10% per annum, your return, if all else remains equal, will be 14%. So the free cash flow yield on the Fondsmith Equity Fund has declined over the last decade. We may now yeah. see rates increase. Um, yeah. Is it probable that the next the next 11 years won't offer as high returns as the previous ones? Well, I mean, given the way you've just phrased that question, the, the simple answer is yes, of course it's possible. Yeah. <laughs> I don't <laughs> um, you might ask, is it likely? I haven't got a clue, and neither has anybody else, really. I mean, look, if we'd been sitting here 10 or 11 years ago and framing that question, would you have predicted what happened next? Um, I don't think you would have, would you? So how do you know what's going to happen after this? I don't know. I don't know a lot. Before the pandemic, which, of course, may change things, um, you know, it's, uh, that's what happens. Events, uh, dear boy, as uh, Harold Macmillan, the Prime Minister, once said. Um, uh, I... I don't spend an awful lot of time from an investment standpoint puzzling about the macro because it doesn't affect the way that we do it. Um, but I am a historian by training, as you said in your opening remarks. And uh, the event that I thought most uh, mirrored or, sh or foreshadowed what happened after the credit crisis of 2008, 2009 wasn't the Great Depression, which everybody looked back at. It was the Long Depression of 1873 to 96. And uh, it had some very similar um, uh, precedents to, the, uh, to the, the, the events of the credit crisis, basically. And if we are following a, a parallel to that, we might not even be halfway through at the moment, yeah. in which case the next 10 years could look very similar to the last 10 years. Um, but it doesn't actually affect the way I invest, basically. Um, because here's the, the other way I put it to you. Oh, Terry, so your free cash flow has de declined. That's obviously contributed to your performance. The next 10 years might be different. Rates might go up. And then, you know, if people are sort of sitting and listening to this and thinking, what should they do from a practical standpoint in investment? The answer, you know, they go, oh, well, and if that happens, I better sell this. To buy what exactly? Bonds? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a great point. It is a great point. I mean, I know I can say because I made it, but I think it is a great point. People seem to think that buying and selling things exist in a vacuum. It doesn't. When I'm thinking of buying or selling a company, it's always in relation to something else. And um, back to your investment process, how has the rise of software as a medium for doing business folded into your investment thinking? Yeah, I mean, it has um, in a couple of ways. One of them is um, we've always been interested in companies that had installed bases of equipment. Uh, from which they get a tame client base that, uh, for spares, service, 
uh, repairs and maintenance and so on. Elevator and escalator companies is the most obvious. You know, you, you, once you've installed a, an Otis or a Kone or a Schindler elevator, there's a 75% chance that you'll sign a maintenance contract with them. And that's where the big money is made because there's little capital expenditure involved in, uh, in maintenance and, uh, and off you go. Um, and there are other examples of that out there in the in the equipment world as well. Testing equipment, mass spectrometry, liquid chromatography equipment, which we own a company. You know, half of the money is made out of the supply of the consumables, the service, and so on. Software sometimes has similar characteristics. The software that you use to power your operating system at work on your computer, the ATMs of your bank, this meeting that you and I are having at the moment, um, the software that's used for payroll processing in businesses, airline reservations, hotel reservations, et cetera, et cetera is an installed base and is a bit of a pain to change it. If it works, by and large, you stick with it. And that's what gives that stickiness is what gives it really good characteristics, financial characteristics. Um, so it's changed in that regard. We've, you know, we've increasingly realized that Microsoft and automatic data processing and Amadeus, a number of other companies are have got very similar stickiness in their business to some of our equipment companies. The other thing is the rise of intangibles. I mean, um, you know, historically, companies before this mostly invested in tangible assets. They invested in land, buildings, plant equipment, etc., vehicles. Uh, and so what they did was they went and bought those things. Uh, and uh, those, that was a balance sheet item, by and large. They went and bought the things and they either raised equity to do it or they raised debt to do it. They ran down cash to go and do this. And it sat on the balance sheet. And the, cap the only cash flow involved in it was that moment of purchase. That was it. It was a capital item. It's not a profit and loss account item. Buying a new building or truck is not, not a P&L account. It's a balance sheet item. The only way this got anywhere near the P&L account was depreciation, if there was any. So there's that. And since most people look at EBITDA, that doesn't, it doesn't even figure. You can go and buy all these things, and the analysts never look at it because it's in, it's in, the, it's, uh, it's in the EBITDA line. And so you know, your company that's got a very traditional physical asset base, um, essentially has all the, the, the heavy lifting of building its, its its plants and its stores and everything else through the balance sheet and, and relatively little impact on the profit and loss account or, or the earnings and therefore the PE multiple. Contrast a software business or a drugs business for that matter in, in, in a lot of cases, their spending is almost all through the PL account. You know? Their product development it basically involves putting uh, cost through the PL account and operating cash out through through the operating cash flow. So if you start comparing them and go, oh, the PE on Microsoft seems a lot bigger than my logistics company, you're probably making a mistake because you, you really are comparing apples and pears out there. You need to think about whether or not they're spending on intangibles. It's not just software, by the way, although that's what you, it, it includes branded goods companies, it includes things like fast moving consumer goods companies. You know, the development of a brand like uh, Nespresso. Uh, Nestle is a substantial drag on the PL account, basically. Yeah. yeah, they do the manufacturing plant to make the capsules. Yeah, I get it. But an awful lot of it is about brand development through marketing and promotion and advertising and so on. And so, you know, that, that asset is built by, by basically depressing the current earnings. So you have to think carefully about comparative PEs. It's, you can't just sit there, as many people do, particularly when they're talking about the debate between value and and, and non-value quality or growth stocks and go, well, these have got a higher PE. Well, no kidding. Uh, of course, they've got a higher PE because they are very largely rooted in a business that's, that's intangible. And since somewhere like the mid-1990s, if you look at the S&P 500, more money has gone into intangibles in US companies than intangible assets now, which is perhaps unsurprising given the rise of tech. Yeah, you talked about this in your last um, letter to investors 
yeah. you won last yeah. year. Do, do you think this issue is widely recognised by your peers? No, not really. No, no. Uh, it's, a, it's one of those things that's difficult because you can't get a precise answer. There's not some formula that you can devise where you can say, ah, the way I can equalise the PE between uh, you know, a physical asset company that's manufacturing stuff or transport and a software or branded goods company is if I apply a factor of 1.737 to this over there, therefore, the, you know, it, it, requir it requires an element of uncertainty in general. It's the same um, when we talk about return on capital and weighted average cost of capital. One of the reasons why I think that people don't focus on it nearly enough is, of course, what cost of capital is something that we don't know. I mean, we literally don't know what it is. I mean, the equity element of it can't be, and people shy away from things like that. But you can do a guess, and a guess is better. It's better than ignoring the subject completely. So is that what you do at Fundsmith to try and see through the problem? Oh, no, no we go through an algorithmic process uh, that's uh, holistic and uh, iterative. Yeah, we have a guess. <laughs> <laughs> When Fundsmith started, one of the biggest winners was Domino's Pizza, which went mm. up over 600% in the five years from when the fund opened. Yeah. Uh, the fund bought it when its market capitalisation was under $2 billion, um, but the mm. cut-off size for new stocks is now larger than that. To what extent yeah. do you think fund size is a challenge going forward? Um, I mean, it definitely is a challenge, let me tell you that. But um, the thing about it is that uh, when you're thinking about that, you have to bear in mind that the world doesn't stand still. I, I, uh, I was thinking about this in a slightly different context the other day. And the slightly different context was uh, somebody had written up in an article, Fundsmith assets under management up 20% in the year to date. And this, of course, is true. Um, but, of course, since the fund has performed by going up 20% in the year to date, what would you expect to be the outcome exactly? <laughs> I mean, people do kind of miss these things. Uh, the world doesn't stand still. So... What was a company that was small enough for us to buy in 2010 is a company that's now too small for us to buy. There's no doubt about that, right? Um, hold the two billion US dollar roughly number in your mind for a moment because we'll come back to it. We can't buy that. Um, but bear in mind, could we buy Domino's Pizza? Though? They just stick with the reality of, of dealing with the real world, like companies. Yeah, why? It's a $20 billion company now. So you know, can we still buy that company today? Sure, we can still buy that company today. What we couldn't buy is another new two billion dollar company, right? That's that's not something we can do. The, the uh, you know our average unit size in the fund is about five hundred million pounds, right? Um, uh, for uh, holding the company, that means uh, let's not get into complex arithmetic. We'd have to own about a third of the company uh, if we were to buy a two billion dollar company. We're never going to do that. I mean, clearly mm. there's been a recent event in the UK where someone disruption tested um, the combination of a daily dealing open-ended fund and illiquid securities, and it didn't end well. Now, we've always been alive to that. We published a liquidity measure on our fact sheet um, since 2012, right? We're aware that this is a daily dealing. So, of course, it's a handicap. Um, uh, you know, we now can't shop much below. If you think, you know, 500 million pounds as, a, as an asset size, probably don't want more than about 5 to 7 or 8% of a company. We're probably looking in the sort of 8 to $10 billion bracket, aren't we, in terms of companies that are ours. But, of course, the world has moved on in the last 10 years. Those companies, you know, the companies that were $2 billion are in that range. But uh, uh, that's why we launched Smithson as well, by the way. Um, yeah. We launched it as an investment trust because we think if you're going to invest in things like that, you should do it in a closed-end fund, not an open-end fund. Yeah. yeah. Uh, because you can't all have your money back at once. 
you sold um, IHG, which is Intercontinental Hotels Group, recently, which, when I looked, has a market cap of about nine billion. Was was this sold on the basis of its size? No, not really. No, um, uh, the rationale. I mean, look, we like the business. It's an asset light hotel business, which is the sort of thing we like. We don't. If you're looking for high return on capital companies, using other people's capital is a really good start, and that's what they seek to do. They have hotel brands, Holiday Inn, Crown Plaza, etc. Uh, Intercontinental, uh, and they they basically license those brands to real estate owners to operate hotels from them and provide management and reservations, etc. Good. The problem for us in IHG was more a combination of things, which is, you know, it's recovered quite a bit from the the COVID shock in the leisure market. That's recovered quite rapidly. The business market is more problematic and. Uh, given that I'm talking to you today on a Teams system, uh, I would say it may continue to be problematic for a considerable time to come because I think we're coping quite adequately um, uh, with this. So let me. So you know, the fundamentals of the business probably aren't going to recover for some while, if at all, in the business area. Right, we've got to say. Uh, but the share price had recovered. Goes back to the don't overpay bit. When thinking about it compared to some other companies out there, well, the problem with this isn't the company and the fact that it's still got this problem in the business. The problem is that the share price has recovered. According to the share price, there's nothing wrong in that, you know? So we had to think about that quite a lot. But no, size wasn't really a fact. As a fund manager, you have to be an optimist. What what trends are you most excited about? I'm not an optimist, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry to disagree with you, but my, if, you, if you ask my colleagues, I'll give you one of their phone numbers. You can ring them whilst we're online if you want and check that I'm not ringing them. <laughs> They'll tell you I'm usually pretty bearish, actually. <laughs> I am not some of these uh, uh, wild optimists uh, out there. But anyway, what trends am I most excited about? Look, there are certain trends out there in the world which I think uh, are interesting. Um, you know, people try to draw parallels between this pandemic and previous events. The most obvious one people have alighted upon is the Spanish flu of 1918 to 1919. And uh, if you look back at that and other previous uh, episodes as well, if you look back in history, uh, back to uh, the, the Black Death or the Plague of Justinian and so on, what these big uh, pandemic events seem to do is to accelerate previous developments. They don't cause something new to happen, but they take existing trends and accelerate them, either down or up. Yeah? Um, so to give you a live example, um, uh, Henry Ford had already put the Model T forward on an assembly line in 1913. This was a, a great leap forward in manufacturing. Before that, the car stood in one place and people arrived with all the bits, folded them together, and people did multitasking in terms of putting the car together, and that was that. When he put it on a production line, the car went along on an assembly line, which I'm sure you've seen, and people did a repetitive task very simply, and, and the car was put together. I think it cut the production time from a car from 12 hours to 93 minutes, which obviously mm. cut the cost of the car a lot and stimulated car demand because he could sell them cheaper, and he had a virtuous circle of, of that going on. But he didn't. The production line was in place before the, the Spanish flu. What the Spanish flu did was, by killing 50 to 100 million people, it reduced the workforce and gave an awfully large injection of people, including Henry Ford, not just Henry Ford, who was a pioneer, but other people thinking, I need a, this assembly line thing now. I know my, workforce, my skilled workforce has been significantly reduced. I need to improve this productivity. And so it gave it a big injection. So let's have a think about this current um, pandemic and things that are, that are doing well and things that are not doing well. I would have said before the pandemic, I would be kind of wary about investing in uh, things like bricks and mortar retail, yeah, um, airlines, yeah, uh, and so on. And so there, there's a number of things in there that I'm, I'm not, not too sure about that. 
Um, you know, things that involve payment in cash, uh, you know, so the traditional payment mechanisms uh, of, of banks, uh, security printing with bank notes, all those kind of things. All of those would be kind of, hmm, I'm not sure I like any of those, uh, really. So banks, airlines, support to retail, the real estate industry itself in providing the property for bricks and mortar retail and office property, hmm, not too sure about that. Um, and whereas the things that are clearly, you know, I think, looking pretty good are e-commerce, uh, working from home or remote working, telemedicine, teleeducation, um, pets. There's a series of things where I could have said to you before this, I think that those things are not very good and this stuff is on the up. But what I think it's done is it's given it an, in, a, a, an injection of a turbocharged the development, basically. Of, of this. So I think all of the things that we're talking about now in terms of remote working, working from home, uh, e-commerce, uh, payment processing, uh, are, uh, yeah, various forms of telemedicine are, are all um, now got a, a pretty good runway ahead of uh, I would say, as well as the last year of being being very good. I mean, the one that I've been most excited about for a very long time, and I remain excited about, is is the pet area. The uh, you know I think anything, almost anything to do with pets is good. Uh, nutrition, testing, pharmaceuticals, veterinary practices—it's it, yeah, um, they are a full family member. And Fundsmith prefers high-margin companies to low-margin companies. And the recent addition of Amazon.com was was a surprise to some. Has your view yeah. changed on the importance of margins? No, not really. Um, I think uh, a couple, a few things got me to the point on Amazon. I mean, the first is I actually regard return on capital as, as far more important than uh, the margin because uh, you can have low-margin businesses like Costco, to which I might return in a moment while I'm uh, talking about this, which has got a uh, a pretty low uh, um, margin, but a very high uh, um, return on capital employed. Uh, so yeah, retail businesses do tend that way. It's like the Amazon Web Services business, or well, since its inception, pretty much, it's pretty similar to the Azure business in Microsoft in the cloud uh, and distributed computing. So yeah, nothing not to like there. Um, a couple of things have happened. One is I think that our understanding of the retail business has grown, and that involves a few things. One is the third-party business where they sell things for other people has now become more than half of that, uh, whereas the first-party business is under half now where they sell things for themselves. Third-party is much better because they don't have to carry the inventory. They just take a commission on the sale. And so the return characteristics of that are an awful lot better, basically, and that is obviously growing in dominance within their business. Um, they've also got a couple of other business lines which have emerged, which have helped this trend. One of them is Prime, uh, which is clearly fulfilling a function not unlike the, uh, the club membership uh, retailer like Costco. Um, and the last thing is advertising. Um, we've obviously had a bit of bumpiness recently in terms of the outlook for companies like Facebook and um, uh, uh, Alphabet or Google in terms of advertising because of the change in the iOS 14 operating system, uh, which uh, has just been put through by Apple, which allows people to opt out of the ability for advertisers to tra trace the data needed to show the efficiency of the ad advertising, which is problematic for them. Amazon does not suffer from that problem. It's not picking up the data on advertising in your shopping habits from your phone. It's picking them up from itself, you know? It, it, it can tell you how effective the advert was because you bought the product or not. Um, yeah. If you buy the product, it can tell you're interested in something, not as a guest because you've been surfing on the subject, because you just sold something to you. Right? And this is this is its fastest growing business, and it's a thirty billion dollar business per annum in revenues now. And so, you know, things change. 
And I think that's really what got us there in the council. Thank you. Well, many growth investors believe that we now need to own private companies to do well because companies are staying private for longer. Do you share this view or are there enough opportunities in public markets for the foreseeable future? Uh, no, I think there are enough opportunities in public markets. Uh, I don't think you've got to own private companies in order to do this. I think owning private companies is interesting um, uh, because not everything is public, obviously. And um, uh, the uh, you know, in owning a private company, you can do some things in many respects out of the public eye that you can't do. It's difficult to manage a public company. I've managed two of them, I know, uh, doing everything in the public eye with a, a demand for quarterly earnings performance and all of these kind of fine things out there. Um, but if you said to me, oh, Terry, well, all right, let's imagine that the Fundsmith was a closed-end fund as of tomorrow and you could own some private companies in it because we clearly can't be in the structure of an open-ended fund. Um, what ones uh, is it you would like to own? You might be surprised by the answer. It's not some technology unicorn, which strikes me as closer to investing in a business plan than a business. Um, and, and the investment outcome quite often relies upon greater fool theory. Can I sell it to somebody else? Um, I'd actually probably ring up Mars to see whether they fancy selling somewhere. I, I imagine the answer would be a categoric no. <laughs> but that's the kind of company which is private, which I would love to invest in. You know, a company which is you know, split between pet food and um, uh, and confectionery. Uh, what a great business. Uh, but unless it's all the Marx family have a uh, some form of a strange mental event, I don't think I or anybody else is going to get to own it. <laughs> and the quality of global equity markets has improved in recent decades with sectors like banking, energy and mining declining in importance. And you've had the growth of the big tech stocks, does this make it harder for quality-focused funds and active funds in general to add value versus passive funds? No, I don't think so. No, I'm, I'm no reason to believe that that rotation from sectors uh, makes this more difficult, basically. And um, does it concern you that some of the very big companies that um, may have become too dominant and or have too much market power and also power over their workers? Um, well, I think that... Um, no, it doesn't. Um, you know, obtaining. I, I almost think that the, uh, the the sort of crusade that's going on against big tech is basically just a crusade against success. I mean, you know, you could cross out the words that they put in there about data and privacy, and uh, so I'm just saying you're just trying to yeah. hit people. And that, that's that's what managers are supposed to do, actually. Right? That's their job. <laughs> but that's that's what they're supposed to do. Um, and as for workers, I think it's a, it's a pendulum. It's clearly swung back post the pandemic very significantly um, in terms of the power of the labor force. You know, uh, um, you know, I mean, if you were to drive along American interstate now, every single truck has a hiring sign stuck on the back uh, offering you $100,000 a year driving a truck. Yeah, you could mm -hmm. give up your job for a truck. It'd be fine. <laughs> so could most people at that rate of pay. It's like, yeah. That beats, that beats the national average wage a bit, doesn't it? Your fund has very low turnover, but you have tended to sell at least one or two companies every year. Is there a common thread between your sell decisions? Um, we, the sell discipline is really pretty straightforward. We Sometimes, sometimes our sell is involuntary. Something gets taken over. Um, we don't have any say. It might be we can vote against the takeover. We're never going to own more than a single figure percentage of the company. So uh, even if we don't want it to be taken over, it doesn't matter, it's going to get taken over, in which case it's gone, right? We don't have it anymore. So that's the, probably the single biggest item amongst turnover is involuntary turnover, actually. Um, after that, we sell, if 
Managements, in our view, are misallocating capital. Uh, we engage with them, obviously. We don't immediately run out the door, but we try to understand what they're doing just in case we've got it wrong and we try to change their mind. But if they ignore us, then we leave, basically, because it's a very important part of, uh, of how we hope to make money for our investors is the reinvestment of capital by companies. Um, moving on from that, I mean, the other thing is sometimes you just get better, 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 something better out there. You know, if we sell, which we did, Imperial Brands to buy Intuit, the accounting software company, it's great. Uh, we sold Clorox to buy um, L'Oreal. It's a terrific trade. Sometimes we just get an opportunity, usually caused by some kind of incident, a pandemic, a family dispute that depresses um, uh, shares and takeover approach to a company, gives us some strange differential between the valuation where we go, that's an opportunity. And so we, well, we think it is. So we try and seize it. And sometimes, last but um, definitely not least, uh, we get it wrong. We buy something that's a really good business. It turns out not to be a very good business. Doesn't happen very often, fortunately, but it has happened. Um, you know, we we're not perfect. Um, and the best thing to do when you conclude you got something wrong is to act. And um, you've read Warren Buffett's annual reports for years and cite them often as key cite their key lessons often. One difference that that is notable between you and him that I can see is that you've said you would never own banks. But that aside, in what ways, if any, would you say your approach differs from Buffett? Um, yeah, what, what way does it differ? I mean, obviously, we don't own any companies wholly. We can't own any companies wholly, right? It's not allowed uh, within our mandate uh, and within the opening. We can't own an insurance business that provides us with a free float, fairly obviously. He's got Geico and uh, General Re and Supercat uh, reinsurance business that provides us with a free insurance float, which is a source of... Uh, well, hopefully free leverage to it, which we haven't got. So, you know, our returns aren't uh, matches. Um, and when you get down to the um, uh, the implementation of the assets strategy, um, I would say we're pretty similar to what he was historically. Um, but I suppose, and, I, and you know, I'm, let me make it absolutely clear, I'm not being critical of him. I wouldn't be. I'm asking you a question because I, I do regard him as a uh, profoundly good investor, basically. Um, I would say when it comes to the strategy of investment, um, he reminds me of that great quote uh, from uh, Mae West, the, uh, uh, the wartime sort of actress and, uh, and pin-up, uh, who said, I was Snow White, but I drifted. <laughs> and, uh, you know, some of the stuff that he's bought in recent years doesn't really fit through what his, uh, his previous strategy would have, uh, would have allowed, uh, essentially. Now, before many goes, ah, sorry, Mr. Crow, I'm not, because, of course, he's taken on other asset managers to manage part of the portfolio now. So appearing, for example, to be the, which he did in recent times, before the pandemic, the largest shareholder in three US airlines is something which we know wouldn't be his strategy, right? Because he did it once before with US Air and had such a bad experience that he wrote in his annual letter that if anyone else was thinking of buying an airline stock, if they rang him up, he'd talk them out of it, right? So he clearly had decided correctly that airlines are a really bad business, yet someone, and I suspect it wasn't Warren, decided to buy 10 or 11% in three airline stocks with, with ultimately disastrous consequences, unsurprisingly, because airlines have changed, right? Um, and uh, so, yeah, look, we are still in the mantra of buying good businesses, whereas I think he's got people working with him on his behalf now who've got, shall we say, a wider mandate. Yeah. And some investors have said that living remotely and being away from the noise of the city has made them better investors. Buffett would be an example, as would John Templeton, who lived in the Bahamas. 
part of Farnsmith is based in Mauritius. Was this also to get away from the noise? And if so, has it helped? Uh, yes and yes. I think that, um, uh, fun enough, uh, Sir John Templeton used to be a client of my uh, broking firm I ran, Colin Stewart. I used to go to uh, Nassau to see uh, him and Mark Olawosko, his, uh, his chief investment officer, quite regularly. And uh, I was, obviously, we're going back some considerable number of years here. We're going back before the internet really took hold. And he said one of the great advantages of operating from the Bahamas was that the, the Wall Street Journal arrived a day late. So provided, when he read some story in there that was absolutely ghastly and he thought he should panic, he realised it was already too late. <laughs> so he did. And uh, he's absolutely right. I mean, uh, you know, the, the noise, uh, another great buffet is it's a mechanism for transferring money from the active to the patient. And it's true. Uh, you know, mostly the noise out there, the day-to-day -day stuff that you get from the broking industry is is aimed at promoting activity, not promoting high returns uh, for people. And uh, so, yeah, I think it's it's very very advantageous. If uh, if I was still in the UK most of the time, I don't think I think the worst place for me to actually manage money is the office. Um, I would probably sat myself somewhere else for large periods of time because the actual act of managing money is 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 about. Um, studying annual reports and quarterly reports to a degree, um, reading industrial publications like Tissue World, Elevator and Escalator Digest, Pet Food Newsletter, um, attending conferences either virtually or, or physically and finding out about companies, um, doing modeling and trying to guess what the future few years looks like in terms of growth rates for companies and so on, um, and comparing all these things. It's uh, the way I always put it, and my colleague Julian often quotes me on it, is the day job isn't glamorous, right? I don't sit there like the fund management equivalent of Rodan's The Thinker trying to have a great thought. Uh, I actually see reading and doing calculations and uh, and talking occasionally with Julian and my other colleagues about well, what does that mean? How does that work? And that's it. That's what mainly it's about application to execute our strategy. Yeah. Now, you've been so generous with your time. I've just got a couple of questions left. Um, you set up your own long and short fund recently for your personal accounts and our listeners are private investors. Do you think how easy is it or is it possible for private investors to have effective shorting strategies? Um, I, well, first of all, I didn't particularly set it up for my personal um, wealth in any way. Um, it just so happens that I, I provided almost all of the capital at the outset because that's kind of what happens at the outset of, of a new fund. Uh, it's exactly what happened with the Funds with Equity Fund. I provided 100% of the capital on day one. It's the only way it started with six. It wasn't particularly for me to do something personal. Um, and uh, yeah, how easy is it? It's very difficult. Well, shorting is an incredibly difficult um, skill to implement, basically. I'm, I'm fortunate from my broken career as an analyst to have uh, known and worked with some of the great shorts out there, people like uh, Jim Chanos at Kidacost Capital, who's got a short-only fund, which is an interesting thing, um, and some of the, 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 the big household name shorts who uh, uh, people have read about over the years were people that I uh, uh, engaged with, did analysis for, worked with, and so on. Um, it's a really difficult skill, basically. Um, uh, I once had a client when I was in broking, um, and there was a, a company which was an online directory company called Scoot during the dot-com era. And I won't get the numbers right, but we decided that this company was not worth much, if anything, uh, when it was trading at about 700p. And it went down about 90%, and my client lost money. 
because of course it didn't go down in a straight line it would go down uh, a bit and then what would happen is uh, strangely there would be a takeover rumor or something and they would be closed out by a margin call and lose money mm-hmm. and then and, uh, that those sort of events are quite difficult you know people have been uh, shorting um, uh, Tesla for some considerable time and, and frankly being carried out um, uh, and not necessarily because they're wrong about the short. I'm not drawing any conclusion either way about that. But if you're going to short a company where someone can tweet, I've got the money in place for a private equity bid, it, it clearly it's a very dangerous thing. Right? Um, so look, I think it can be made to work, um, but it's not easy. And I would have thought most private investors uh, in terms of implementing it themselves would be well advised to give it a wide berth. Yeah. And what's the one company that you wish you had bought but didn't and haven't? Uh, I'm not going to tell you that because I might buy it in a minute. (laughs) (laughs) That's fair enough. Well, Terry, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. That was fascinating. Really grateful.